Well, last week I began by describing how the greatest story ever told contains the greatest tragedy ever imagined. That the man and his wife, created to know and love God, engaged in a revolution by putting their desires above the revealed will of God. And we saw last week that there was a tempter who seduced them to fall, and that because because of sin, they too become tempters to others. This becomes the human condition. The tempted become the tempters, and the seduced become the seducers. And the brokenness of this first couple, obviously we know, has extended to their offspring, And this can be seen in the very first relationship between siblings who are born of them. Because that very first relationship ends in a murder. God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice. He was displeased with Cain's sacrifice. And because of anger and envy, Cain rose up and killed his brother Abel. We all know the story. And to expose the heart of Cain, God asks him, where is your brother Abel? And Cain famously answers, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, not only was Cain's answer a lie, for he knew what had become of Abel, But his attitude demonstrated contempt for God and for his brother. Because the truth of the matter is, he was his brother's keeper. God created him in part to be his brother's keeper. He was to be concerned for the welfare of his brother. And part of the reason that God gathers you and I into families is that so we might look out for one another. By God's design, there is a natural commitment that you and I are to have for our own family. And these bloodlines are are among the strongest relationships we have in this life. And when they are not, we all recognize that something is wrong. If someone refuses to care for the needs of a member of his own family, we recognize that that is a great shame to him. There is an inherent responsibility given to us that we take care of our own. Now, as the biblical story unfolds, we discover that the design of the family that God designed, it's His idea, that becomes a representation of an even greater reality that God designed. The idea of commitment based on physical descent paves the way for an even greater commitment that we are to have in this life, and that is a commitment through spiritual descent. We who are believers in Christ become the spiritual family of God. God, the all-powerful, eternal, unseen creator of all things, gathers to himself throughout the world 
and throughout all of human history, a people for His name's sake, a family. And He brings us into fellowship with Himself so that we might literally become the children of God. That is what salvation is. God working throughout the world through the Gospel to gather together His children. Now here's the point I want to make with the whole backstory of Cain. As it is with biological family, where we have an obligation to be committed to and responsible for others within that unit, we now have an obligation to our new spiritual family that is an even greater obligation because it deals with relationships that will far exceed the short time that we've been given here on earth. Your earthly biological family will eventually be dissolved through death, but your new spiritual family will remain forever. Biological families in this life are important, but outside of Christ, temporal. But those who are joined to Christ by the Spirit of Christ become a family that is eternal. And just as God expects you to take care of the members of your earthly family, which is a truth found throughout all of Scripture, even more so, you are to take care of the members of your spiritual family. Look around. That's all of you. You are not to be like spiritual Cain, where you disregard, or even worse, are hostile to your brothers in Christ, but rather you are to be one another's, you are to be your brother's keeper. You are to look out for one another's needs. God has given us one another for this purpose. Now, as we consider the first four verses in Luke chapter 17, we are going to find the emphasis that Jesus puts on this. According to verses 1 through 4, the two main ways that we look out for each other is that we are to protect and we are to correct. We are to protect and we are to correct. Now, last week's sermon was that we are to protect. Jesus emphasized the importance of this in that we are never to put a stumbling block in front of another believer. What does that mean? That means we are to never do anything in our words or our actions that would cause another believer to be tempted to sin. So, you are on a particular journey in your relationship to God, your brother in Christ is on a particular journey heading to the same destination, and your role in relationship to that person is to build them up and help them on their journey as you both head toward the promised land. And you are to avoid at all costs doing anything to trip up that believer so as to fall into sin. 
you are to protect. You protect him with your words. This is review of last week, by the way. That means you're careful to not say anything that would send him in the wrong direction, whether through teaching him something that is false, whether bringing him into your circle of gossip where you share your bitterness for someone else with him, whether you use persuasive words to send him in some direction towards sin, you are to protect him also by your actions. You are not to stumble him by inviting him to participate in something that he thinks is a sin. You are to protect him by not going against what his conscience is telling him. In other words, you can do this, it's okay. You're just being overly sensitive. And I shared some examples of that last week from Scripture. But all that to say, you are your brother's keeper, and you are always to consider the welfare of those around you in the church so as to help them and not to hinder them. Now, how serious is this to the Lord? We considered the frightful imagery last week where Jesus says it would be better if a millstone were tied around your neck and you were cast into the bottom of the sea than lead one of these little ones astray. And we saw what a horrifying image that is and how it reflects such a great love that Jesus has for His disciples. So as the family of God, we are to protect. A Christian is not someone who lives in isolation. A Christian is not someone who has no responsibility toward others in the church. You are your brother's keeper, and you are to first and foremost protect. But as we will discover in verses 3 and 4, you are also to correct Part of your responsibility in your relationship to other believers is that you are to correct a brother or sister when they sin. Part of loving your spiritual siblings involves not only considering their needs so as to encourage them on the right course, but also to correct them when they stray from the course. Now, God may convict a person's soul so as to bring about repentance without any human intervention whatsoever. I'm sure you have experienced that where you have sinned and you feel so convicted over it, you just confess it to God and you repent and no one has to come to you. But it's also very likely that God will use another brother or sister in the church to come to you and address your sin in the, for the sake of love. God may bring about a sense of grief when you stray from His will. I think of David when he decides to number the nation. He takes a census. And after he does, he is struck with conviction. And he says, oh God, I have sinned. But there's also the instance when he sins with Bathsheba 
And he is not struck with conviction. And Nathan has to come to him and tell him, brother, you are in sin and you need to repent. So what God does within the church is use you in each other's life to keep us on the right course. Sin brings separation. It puts a barrier between us and our God. It puts a barrier between us and one another. And what removes that barrier is confession of sin and repentance. And sometimes that needs to be brought into focus by a brother in the church. Because honestly, you and I can become hardened to sin and we don't even see it. And we need someone who can come along in love and point us to the path of righteousness. This is what the Lord Jesus wants us to consider this afternoon. Look at verse 3. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, I want to focus on the first half of this verse, the rebuke part. And I will admit, and you all know it, this is something that no one likes to do. No one likes this kind of confrontation. Okay, maybe there are some Pharisee types who get a kind of thrill out of nailing their brother to the wall and exposing their sin. Maybe there are some self-righteous ones who sort of get some kind of kick out of that. But I would say for the most part, this is something we do not like to do and something we often avoid. You like your personal space. You like to give others their personal space. And when another brother or sister has sinned against you, you often convince yourself that it's not really your responsibility to do anything. Maybe you decide, this is what you have to do. I'm going to pray for the person and I will pray that God does a work in that person and then you can sort of wash your hands of the whole thing. It's good to pray for the person. Or maybe you rationalize it in your own mind and you think, I am such a sinner. Who am I to go to someone else and point out their sin? Or you rationalize it and say, I'm not, the, I'm not supposed to be policing other Christians. I mean, that's not my job. Who, who wants that around them? Or maybe you rationalize it and say, well, what if this damages the relationship? What if this makes it even worse when I try to go and tell the person that they have sin? And so you don't like awkward situations, you don't like confrontation, and you just sort of shrink back and pretend that nothing happened. But, what Jesus says here in verse 3 is that there are times that God wants you to do something about this. This is a command from Jesus to His disciples 
which means this is a command from Jesus to you. You are to go to a person in love with the authority of Jesus Himself. And the concern that you are to have is not to nail this person to the wall, but is, it's for the sake of reconciliation. It's for the sake of reconciliation between you and the person and between that person and their God. So it's not you meddling. This is not talking about you getting involved in something that's really none of your business. There are those times. But this is you loving your brother or sister so much that you will correct them to help lead them back on the path of righteousness because they have gone astray. One thing we must learn is how to godly how to how to love someone and in a godly manner rebuke them. <laughs> Sounds like a contradiction, it's not. One commentator says this, to rebuke does not mean to point out every sin, for Jesus also warns against being judgmental. Rebuke is always to be done in love and compassion, not in a censoring and judgmental spirit. Its purpose is to bring the sin to the attention of the offending person and restore them to fellowship with the Lord and other believers. So, the goal of rebuking is the person's purity and holiness and relationship with God, not because you want to get something off your chest. Not because you want to put this person in their place. And this is, this is important. And the Lord has entrusted this to you. Now, what kind of sin are we talking about here? Well, I think it is clear from this context that Jesus is talking about personal sin and more specifically, a personal sin involving you. Because, as we're going to see next week in verse 4, he goes on to say, if the person repents, you are to forgive him. Maybe that's the end of verse 3. Yes, we're going to see that next week. So, you cannot forgive someone's sin if they have not... I mean, they must offend you for you to be able to forgive them. So, this is an issue where another believer in the church has offended you, has sinned against you, and he wants you to go and make things right. This is not a situation where you think someone might have sinned or you have a feeling based on their attitude that they might have sinned or you kind of have a gut feeling hunch that there might be sin in their life. Jesus tells us elsewhere we are not to judge a person's motives. We cannot see their hearts. We are not to judge based on what we think is going on inside. Rather, we are dealing with a clear violation of the revealed will of God. So this is where a person has swerved out of their lane, gotten themselves entangled in some kind of sin that involves you, 
And now you become the responsible party to go to them and bring it to their attention with the hopes of their repentance. And you don't like to do that. (laughs) So you often avoid this necessary duty. And what's even worse is you often go to others and you tell them about it without even going to the person who has offended you. We'll talk more about that next week also. Well, you might be hearing all this and saying, well, how often is this going to take place? I mean, I sin all the time. Am I going to have brothers and sisters coming up to me every week and pointing out my sin? No. There are times when, for the sake of loving others, you should overlook their sin. Let me give you two, two scriptures. 1 Peter 4.8 Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. You've heard that verse before, I'm sure. Proverbs 19.11 Good sense makes one slow to anger, And it is His glory to overlook an offense. So, there are certain instances where a brother or sister has offended you or has sinned against you and it is a righteous thing to do to overlook their offense. So, let's say after the service we go out front and we're enjoying our pizza and we're having fellowship with each other. And someone else makes a joke about you at your expense in front of others and they all laugh. And it hurt your feelings. And there are a couple things you could do here. Well, there's probably more. You could get so bitter and upset about it, you just hold it in and you go off and and you're keeping score and it just ruins that relationship because you just... Suppress it. Or, you could go to the person and tell them how they offended you and deal with it that way. Or, if it's not, something you realize was intended to hurt you. You step back and you say, you know what? He wasn't trying to hurt me. He was saying something I did that I guess was pretty funny. And the people laughing weren't doing it to ridicule or mock me, but It was a funny situation. And so I'm going to choose to humble myself and I'm going to overlook this and I'm going to cover it up with love and I'm not going to bring it up even to myself. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I'm going to put the best possible angle on this and say, he wasn't trying to hurt me. This this isn't really a sin situation. They were just being careless and I'm going to choose to overlook that. Or maybe you're counseling a brother or sister. You're spending a lot of time with someone who's got a very big problem and they're hurt and they're angry and as you are laboring to help them, they seems like they're starting to get angry at you. And you're there to help them. I mean, you know how many hours I've spent with you on that? You're getting mad at me? That's, that's how you're thinking. 
And you could confront the person, or you could stand back and say, this person is really hurting, and I know she does not mean this. And so I am going to choose to overlook this, and I am going to... Love covers a multitude of sins. I'm not going to bring this up. I'm going to let it go for the sake of love. And that's good. But the problem is, when we treat every sin in the church like this, we don't want to get involved when there is a sin that should not be covered up. We do not think it's our responsibility. And we do not want to be our brother's keeper. Now, this is not an example of someone offending another individual, but let's say there is a brother in our church whose priorities start to become out of whack, and when football season starts, this guy does not come to church anymore. Years ago, actually, there was a couple who used to come to church, and for three, five months, how long is football season? I don't even know. He was not there a single Sunday. And his wife told me, He'll come to church with me, but when football season starts, you won't see him anymore. He not only follows like one team, he watches like every game that's televised. He was not a Christian, he did not profess to be a Christian, but I'm just using him as an example. Let's say there is a brother who's a solid believer, and all of a sudden football season starts and you don't see him anymore. He is neglecting the necessary worship of God the corporate worship of God among the redeemed community. His priorities are out of whack and he needs to be corrected. He needs someone to come and rebuke him in love. Now, this is not you meddling in someone else's business. This is you loving a brother enough to correct his course and put him back on track. God expects us to do this with each other. It's not just about you and a person. It's about unconfessed sin that puts a barrier between them and their God. I mean, sin sin is a manifestation of something that's wrong with their relationship with God. If they are not convicted of their sin and they need a brother to come correct them, they need a little bit of a shake to, 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 to remind them of what is important. we are the family of God and this community of believers is a community that is pursuing righteousness together. We are not called as individuals to have an individual personal relationship with God apart from a community. We are to share in each other's lives where we all have our eyes fixed on the same goal and we are helping one another as we go through this wilderness wandering to the promised land. This means that faith is not a private affair. You are not to live your Christian life in isolation of other Christians. And if you show me someone who lives in isolation from a local Christian community, I will show you someone who is outside of the will of God. The church is a community who is pursuing righteousness together. Love not only protects 
it corrects. In fact, if you compare the teachings of Jesus on this subject elsewhere, you discover that He wants you to go to the other person, whether it's their sin or whether it's your sin. In other words, He expects you to deal with it in both directions. In fact, keep your finger here in Luke 17. Flip over to Matthew 5. This is a wonderful passage to consider in light of what we are learning tonight because this is going in the other direction. Matthew 5, verse 23. He says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So you're heading to church, and you remember that you offended someone. You sinned against someone. And your relationship with that person is not right. There needs to be repentance, and forgiveness, and reconciliation. And Jesus thinks this is so important he wants you to get that right before you even go to church. Things aren't right, and He knows your sin is going to affect your worship. So, He wants you to deal with it. Now, usually, when we recognize that we have sinned against someone, we know it's our responsibility to deal with it. Right? Man, I messed up. I got to go to this guy. I got to confess my sin. I wronged him. It was wrong. I need to deal with it. But back to Luke 17. You can turn back there. This is the person who has sinned against you. And guess who he wants to deal with it? He wants you to deal with it. <laughs> so he wants you to deal with it if you're the sinner. Or He wants you to deal with it if you're the one being sinned against. Either direction. He does not want you to sit back and say, well, if, that one, if, if she wants to come to me and ask for forgiveness, she's free to do so. She knows where I live. And you just sit back and do nothing about it. Doesn't that sound so much better? <laughs> no. He expects you to go and confront the person for the sake of love and reconciliation. You sinned against someone, go to them. You've been sinned against by someone, go to them. In fact, to make this easy for you to remember, the one who knows goes. How's that for concise and clear? The one who knows goes. You know that someone has something against you or you have something against someone else. You are responsible in the eyes of God to go and deal with it. Whether it's yours, whether it's someone else's. Now, this is an important part of being a Christian. And it's so important 
Because it not only affects your relationship to that person, it affects their relationship to God, but it can infect the entire Christian community. When there's sin between two people in the church, it can often affect the entire church. You ever heard of church, churches splitting? Sometimes a church will split over two people who have differences, some issue, and they cannot reconcile. And what they do is they go to others and get people on their side and people start lining up on either side of this thing to where it gets so big and out of hand that the church divides over it. They didn't deal with their sin biblically. They didn't seek reconciliation the way that God has instructed them. And so they end up splitting the entire congregation. This is not only an individual thing. This affects the whole community. This affects our witness to the watching world. If we are a family, we are the spiritual family of God, and we are to protect and we are to correct. If we do things biblically, it will be evident that we are God's. There was a problem in the early church in Corinth. In fact, we're going to prepare for communion here in a minute, and I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because we are going to see what happens when sin is not dealt with. <clears throat> and how sin can affect an entire church. So if you have read the New Testament, you know the Corinthian church was not a group of believers that had it all together. Paul writes a corrective letter to them and he goes through a list of issues that they had. One issue they had was in chapter 5, there was an adulterous relationship going on in the church and none of the other believers called the person out on his sin. In fact, they probably said, wow, isn't God's grace amazing? We're all sinners, right? And so, you know... Who am I to say if this person's in adultery? I'm an adulterer at heart. I mean, come on. We're all sinners. Let's just all celebrate God together. And so they were not their brother's keeper in that they did not seek to correct each other when they sinned. And so Paul gets so incensed about it that he orders them to have the man removed from the congregation. And he tells them, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, if you allow some sin to remain in your congregation, it's just going to spread and fill the whole thing. <clears throat> so that's one instance of an entire community being affected by one man's sin. By the time you get to chapter 11, which is what you should have open in your lap, you discover that the church was disjointed in other ways also. And this became evident when they came together for the Lord's table. They did not look out for one another. They did not consider others as more important than themselves. In fact, hop down to verse 17. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. 
he says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now what Paul is talking about here is that factions in the church give opportunity for those in the church to demonstrate the fruit of love. So there are factions, but then there are also what surfaces from that are the mature believers who are to act in love and they become evident among the body. That's what he's talking about. Verse 20, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one... Sorry, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So Paul is rebuking the church here. For when they would come together and communion was part of a larger meal, they had some people not thinking of others and waiting so they would stuff themselves. They had some people who decided they would just help themselves to the wine that was on the table and they kept throwing them back. And it was this disjointed mess of a lack of love and disunity. So they didn't have regard for others in the body and Paul rebukes them and says, it's better if you don't even get together at all. But, but here's what I want you to see. They were not confronting each other They were not correcting each other. They were not rebuking one another in in love for the sake of holiness. And this display of selfishness was going on at what should have been the most sacred time of the week for them. So, they're all pressing ahead, doing their own thing, when they're supposed to be focusing on Christ who did the opposite of that, who put all of the others ahead of his own needs. And so what a, what, what a, responsible, what a responsibility we have been given in the church for the sake of the body, for the sake of each of our relationship to God, for the sake of the holiness of our community, to correct one another in love. Don't think that you're too sinful to correct someone. Don't worry that the relationship might get damaged if you go to someone because you are going with the very authority of Jesus Himself. You need to leave those things with the Lord and trust Him and obey Him in this. It is the will of God that we as a people, as the family of God, live in unity and harmony and love with one another. And one of the ways this is demonstrated is that we correct one another 
when we go astray. We are to protect and we are to correct. Now, if you look down at verse 27, notice the strong rebuke that Paul gives to the church who are not concerned about holiness and they're not concerned about one another when they come to the Lord's table. And in verse 27 he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is a strong rebuke and warning. He says, you want to bring judgment on yourself instead of blessing? Continue to disrupt the worship of God by being selfish and not caring for the others. Continue to allow sin to remain among you. That's what I think he means when he says without discerning the body. He's talking about the body of Christ. Everyone's forging on ahead. Everyone's doing their own thing. Everyone's concerned about only their own things. And at the very place where they should be considering others, where they should be considering the Lord, they are not doing that. And so what is the answer? You are your brother's keeper. You are to love one another. You are to rebuke one another when necessary. And we are all to pursue righteousness together as a community, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That is what the Lord's table is about. Jesus has appointed a time for us in our gathering that we are to fix our eyes upon His sacrifice. This Participation does not impute righteousness to us like the Roman church teaches. This is for the sake of remembrance so that we all focus on what Jesus has done in our place. And if you are here today and you have sin, if you are here today and you have not been your brother's keeper, and have not sought reconciliation with others when you ought to have. This is a table for you. This is not a table for, for, for the higher echelon of Christians who have achieved a certain level of holiness. This is a table for sinners who are repentant and humble. And so we come to this table recognizing what it cost Him to redeem us. Still in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we want to be a people after Your namesake. We want to be the family of God who lives with one another in holiness and honor, who is so concerned about our community and the holiness that is part of it that we want to maintain that, that we have the boldness and the love for others in that we will not be afraid to correct one another. We will not be afraid to lovingly rebuke one another. Please help us in this, Lord. Please help us in this that that we do it not in a spirit of self-righteousness, but in humility. Please help us, Lord, in that we have the courage to do it with love and honesty. And Lord, that we would glorify You in all that we do as we all focus on the path that is ahead of us, as we all seek to attain the final destination, our heavenly home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.